Welcome to Sticks and Taps, where the conversation is hockey and the keg is always cold. The games will be on soon, so let's step up to the bar, grab a pint, get into it. Your host, Paul Cuthbert and Liam McGuire. Slanta, fellas, and don't forget to pay your tabs. Ah, uh, thank you so much, Seamus, and welcome aboard, everybody. Another episode of Sticks and Taps, quarantine edition. Yours truly, Mr. Paul Cuthbert, down here in the great city of New York. And uh, everybody, please say hello to your friend and mine up in the great white north in Ottawa, Mr. Liam McGuire. Liam, how are you, How's she going? How's she going there, Polly? How's she going? She's going as good as she can. It's all, it's all we got. You got to use whatever you got, right? We don't hey, have you much. Know so- you know something? <laughs> <laughs> Did I ever tell you about my cousin, Seamus? Well, he's the man who runs the bar here, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I had a cousin, Seamus. He's, he's sadly no longer with us. He died of a brain aneurysm uh, quite a few years ago in his early 40s. Uh, God rest his soul. But a um, few years younger than me. But during our probably the pinnacle of all of our visits to Ireland, in 1989, in June of 1989, it was the trip when my parents and my brothers and I got off the plane in Dublin. And as we walked into the airport, my parents went one way and me and my brothers went the others. And we said, we'll see you in two weeks. (laughs) 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 My cousins now and us, we're all in our 20s every single one of us and he want to talk about a trip and Seamus was still alive and they said well we think it's time and I said oh yeah time for what they said time to settle with side of the ocean can put the pints back the best <laughs> <laughs> so it was Maguire versus Maguire Shillelagh and all was all the rage, and the whole interruption soon began. <laughs> <laughs> was, were you able to determine a winner? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you straight up right now. I'm going to take my medicine and uh, not just saying it because he's passed away, but uh, I'm telling you, Polly, that man could look at a pint of Guinness and it would evaporate. Like, his his sips were... I can't, I can't even describe it because he never wasn't a chugger. He wasn't doing it to show off. He wasn't doing it. He was an intellect. He was brilliant. He knew something about everything. He was, he was up to date on every single political manifestation, the globe over. Like he could talk about anybody's politics. He uh, was a huge, huge um, um, soccer fan, a fan of the, QPR, Queens Park Rangers was his team, and and he was knowledgeable about that. He obviously had a huge love for the national sport of Ireland, which is hurling, and because um, our our uh, we had you know some relatives and and some family friends on my dad's side growing up in Dublin that played, so he had he had a lot of knowledge of that. But my God, could that man drink? And uh, we we hit on a tour across that country i'll tell you we got in a car and hooked up with friends of theirs including seamus's dear friend a man named rab McAllister, who ended up being the lead audio technician on the 1991 
uh, U2 tour. Oh, wow. With Bono and the boys. So when they came to Toronto, he, Rob, who we had had that excursion with, shall we say, in 89, um, he, uh, he got us tickets for me and my brothers and, and, uh, and a bunch of friends. And we went to the show and we were right there. I don't know if you saw that tour or not, but it, it uh, the stage, one of those stages that, that came out into the crowd, it was like, which the stones are kind of more familiar with, but, yeah. but, uh, you two did it that year. And, um, so we were there and then we had backstage passes. So we went backstage into this great big hospitality area. And I went in there and I remember going in there and they said, Oh yeah, Bono and the boys are going to come by. You're going to have a few seconds to say hi. And I said, great. And we saw Rob and everything. And he said, Hey, Liam, by the way, this is an open bar. And I said, Oh, God <laughs> bless your soul. <laughs> and then I launch a major assault on that baby. Oh my God. Anyways, they were going out of there fists over tea kettles and, uh, it was just great. And then, uh, Bono and the boys showed up and we had our cursory 20 or 30 seconds with them each. They had a lot of people to say hi to obviously, but they were very gracious. And, and, you know, Rob said, Hey, uh, you know, cousins here from Canada, but their dad, Noel McGuire, he's a dub. And, oh, you know, and what's I, you know, whereabouts? And I said, 60 Malahide Road. And, you know, Ed just said, oh, Malahide, oh, I know it well. And, you know, I did this and this in the town and everything. So, you know, we had a, just a few seconds more of the cursory sort of uh, chat. But they were they were gone as quickly as they stopped by and on to the next people. But uh, anyway, I just thought, you know, we got that great introduction from Seamus every week, which I love. And it sets the table so nicely for us, and especially with the music we always play at the end, and another beauty song today that'll finish for us. And uh, I thought, geez, I don't think I've ever said to Polly about my cousin Seamus, and you would have loved him. Uh, I miss him, I really do. He was just a prince of a man, and uh, he was married, unfortunately, with a young family when he died, so it was real, real sad. But uh, an aneurysm, so he went, you know, with no pain, but but quickly, and obviously far too young. But what a trip! in 89 and when I went back with Liz when I got married in 94 he was still alive and, and we got some great pictures of him and I there's a picture of me and him leaning against the wall in his sister's apartment having a conversation and uh it's the last time I saw him and and I'll cherish it forever because uh, you would have loved him he he just was such a unique unique guy he was McGuire through and through and I'm not a big guy, but he was smaller than me. And I just never seen anybody just just look at pints and have them evaporate <laughs> like he could. And and I was a pretty good goal. You know, I mean, I, I could handle my beer. And uh, I got to say, in all honesty, even the night we went in this year and ordered the 64 pints at last call, he Ooh. still was, he, he could best me. He could best me. I got to be honest. Well, I don't say that about many men, I'll tell you right now. <laughs> well, there's no doubt there's... Uh... Certain Irish fellows who've been blessed with some, uh, definitely some uh, magic as far as their metabolisms and their, <laughs> their body chemistries. <laughs> my my uh, my uncle Arthur, he recently passed away, unfortunately too. And uh, but um, I tell you, he's a little, little fella, uh, great singer, great entertainer. That's what he did uh, during his um, his heyday and everything else. But man, right up until the end there, um, smoking and drinking Guinness. That's it. And yeah. no, nothing wrong with him, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Until the yeah. very, very end. But you, 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 you know, you, you, 
not not in terms of looks, but if you if you you know you picture a guy like uh, Keith Richards from the the Stones, right? The guy's been he's done been everything, right? He's, I know, and he's still he's still skipping he's still skipping out of the house every day. You know what I'm saying he, he's looked ninety since he was thirty five, <laughs> exactly, and he, yeah. he just looks like he's indestructible. I mean, that's it's just uh, they're, they're they're such legends too. I mean, I've I've seen them I think three times and. It's it's not that I always rush to the stores to get their music. They have a bunch of songs that I really like, but but I, and I enjoyed them in concert. But they never they never did for me in a show what Springsteen did. I mean, Spring Springsteen Live is an experience that everybody should have, whether you're a fan or not. If you haven't seen him live, then I don't think you can really properly uh, comment on on what he does to an audience over the three to four hours that he'll play. It, it's it's an emotional, physical, mental roller coaster that uh you know of music that he, he takes you on and and I, I I think he's amazing. But the Stones are legends and um you know you two are pretty damn good themselves. I've seen them a few times and they're awesome as well. But uh but Keith Richards is just another story altogether. Holy cow. <laughs> I don't know how that man is still upright but no, I don't. I don't know. My ex-wife says, uh, "Liam, you'll never get sick. Nothing wants to live in your body." So you know, uh, maybe something like that with Keith Richards. Oh, is, I don't know. It's fascinating stuff. <laughs> no, I'm with you on the on Stones and and uh, and Springsteen too. I was, you know, in the '80s, I was a big hard rock kid, and and. and pretty much into the nineties and I'm still a hard rock kind of guy. I mean, my hair used to be down to my ass and all that stuff. And, but, uh, so I wasn't, uh, when, when Bruce was doing his main thing there in the eighties and, uh, born in the USA, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really into it, but I've become a huge Springsteen fan as I've gotten older and everything. But I actually, I got to see him on the human touch tour. That's he wasn't with Springsteen. Uh, I mean, the E street band. Um, and my cousins are just diehards and everything. So, um, uh, we went to the show, and I was just, you know, at that point, getting a little, a little older, at twenty two, twenty three, and uh, just uh, I love all kinds of music and stuff, so I've always had a respect for it. Um, but I just enjoy it. But I don't. Have you seen the um, the the Springsteen Netflix show, the the Broadway? You know what? I haven't seen it. All right, so I listen to me. Seen it. Listen to me. You got to check it out because obviously, you know, if you're a diehard Springsteen fan or just a huge fan of them, you know, that's one thing. But I'll tell anybody who wasn't really a diehard Springsteen fan. Now, I've performed and played his songs throughout. You know, I'm not a dummy. I know how great he is. I get it. I didn't get it when I was a, a young kid because I was just, I was into hard rock and heavy metal, Iron Maiden, Queensryche, all that stuff, Judas Priest, Miley Crew, blah, 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 blah. So that's what I was doing when he was really writing, you know, all those great albums and those great songs in, 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 at that time. But um, I'll tell you what, man, I watched that Broadway thing um, on Netflix and it is absolutely one of the most incredible uh, pieces of, of entertainment you could watch. And if you're not a diehard Springsteen fan, you really get taken in. Uh, you know, you find more about him. Like the next day I went out and bought his biography. You know what I'm saying? Like I got to know more about yeah. this. Because I found out how much more I relate to him as a musician and as a songwriter. And as a lunch pail kind of guy, how he just kind of just, – he just worked his ass off. Uh, to become so successful. And it's almost in a way that, you know, how uh, U2 was, too. I look back at some of the videos of them in the, in the 90s with U2 when they, you know, Bono, they were just so young and in, in such great shape, and they were just starting to really take over the world, uh, you know, in terms of where they are right now, you know what I'm saying? And it's just magical to look back at the, the point when they were that young and, and just really becoming these, they're major, you know, Rolling Stones, U2, 
Bruce Springsteen, these are icons of, of rock and music, you know, legends, you know what I'm saying? But they all started somewhere, and a lot of them started, you know, with nothing. And um, it's it's amazing. And, and I just wanted to say that, listening to you talk about Bruce, you got to watch it, Liam. It's magnificent. Yeah. And anybody out there who's listening who's not a – who doesn't get Springsteen, uh, like I didn't really – um, but watch the Netflix special because it's it's a one man show, but it's brilliant. Um, he goes back and forth between the guitar and the piano, and, and yeah. a lot of the songs that even just in mainstream you would recognize the, the, the Springsteen tunes. But man, you 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 he teaches you, and then you totally get it, and it's just magnificent. And even just like I said, if you're a fan of music and performance, and Broadway and theater, and storytelling, which I know you, I mean. You would just be over the moon with it, uh, Liam, because uh, well, I've I've heard a lot of it, right? I mean, I have the Springsteen channel in the truck, and 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 uh, you know, I mean, it's on. Yeah, but you gotta watch 90, them do it though. 98. They played the whole. They've played the whole thing, and uh, I mean, it's I haven't I haven't I haven't listened to it from start to finish on whatever audio that they have. But there's so much that they play where he's doing, you know, where he's talking about so much, and then plays different songs i i feel i've gotten a, a a pretty good a pretty good idea of it i have a i have a friend like you here we call him rocket ronnie warwick uh pretty good hockey player played university hockey in canada here and uh, he and his girlfriend went to uh the broadway show they went down and he he's a musician he heads up a band here called sticks and stones there they go they're called ottawa's best little party band and and uh they they're like a seven piece band. They really rock it out. And, and, uh, he, he went down, he, he gave me quite a dissertation of it, uh, the week after he was there and, and, but, and there's, there is some snippets obviously available, but I haven't sat down and watched the whole thing. I, I feel I've gotten a, a bit of a pulse of it for sure by what I've been able to hear and a little bit I've seen, but, uh, yeah, that's a, uh, especially now, right? Probably, although I write a lot, I'm writing a screenplay, you know, every day I'm trying to write another thousand words on the screenplay. So it's, uh, I don't really, I, I still, and, it's and not like video, I sit and wondering what, what I got. Too. What's that? <laughs> your video channel's taken off too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, the funny thing about that is people are messaging me every day, getting messages every day from somebody saying they're picking up a bottle of whiskey and when i do a shot at the end they're doing it <laughs> they're doing a shot too it's awesome i love it like yep. i said to somebody last week hey country that drinks together beats covid together so there let's go. keep going let's keep going <laughs> well when you get around to it man fire up that bruce show on netflix you'll really enjoy it really i will enjoy it all right buddy uh once again everybody welcome thank you so much for listening to sticks and taps and we see it we really appreciate everybody uh hanging out with us here during this quarantine time that we're all in and obviously there's no games going on but we've got one of the greatest nhl historians and storytellers here with us and that's mr liam mcguire so liam what do you got for us today what would you like to talk about and uh you know just uh maybe teach us all something that may maybe all of us don't know as far as hockey fans go well, I'm gonna get uh, gonna get you to participate uh, uh, in in a couple minutes time here, Polly, too, because um, this is the anniversary of Wayne Gretzky's last game ever in the NHL, right in your fine city at uh, Madison Square Garden. Uh, he's a member of the New York Rangers. They played the Pittsburgh Penguins, and and if that wasn't fitting enough to discuss it in just a minute, uh, because you're there and what you do for the Rangers and your love of them, and we've discussed them a few times. Uh, his last game ever in Canada was right here in Ottawa the night before. Yesterday was the anniversary of his last game in Canada, and, and he remains a Canadian citizen. We all know what he's um, meant to hockey in general the world over. 
not just uh, Canada and North America, but the world over. He's had such an impact, but but he's he's a very proud Canadian and has represented Canada. In fact, any single time he was asked, he never, ever, ever turned his country down, unlike Mario Lemieux and and a number of others over time. Didn't matter when or what the occasion was, if you asked Wayne to play, whether it be a World Championship, World Cup, Canada Cup, whatever, um, World Junior, he he was going, and he did. And as we know, he he excelled. So it was, it was pretty amazing. So I think when we finish today, because I just got a little something I want to say first about the Detroit Red Wings, but um, when we do get on to Gretzky, I'd like to get your thoughts and your memories of, of him as well. Your, your thoughts would be every bit uh, uh, interesting to hear, I think, uh, you know, you love hockey, and uh, and he was a Ranger. And I know anytime we talk about anybody and their background at some point inc- includes them wearing the, their, the the blue color of New York, baby. That you like to point that out. So, so I think um, I think your thoughts on that would would be appropriate as well, because it is a pretty significant uh, anniversary, if you will, of of the end of uh, you could argue uh, the greatest offensive career in sports. I mean, you could. He's in the discussion for sure, you know, with some NBA guys and however you want to decide on some, you know, some of the baseball players with great stats and the football players, what have you. Wayne's definitely in the discussion. But I wanted first, Paulie, just to give a shout out to the Detroit Red Wings. And um, yesterday was the anniversary of them winning their second Stanley Cup. So they they won their first cup in 1936 and, and they repeated 1937 and they became the first American team to repeat as Stanley Cup winners. So I, I, I think that's significant. I mean, uh, you can say all you want about the game of hockey and the origin and everything that it's meant to Canada and what and what Canada has meant to hockey. But sometimes, and I can be guilty of this too, you know, you lose sight of the fact that south of the 49th has had a massive impact on the game as well. And and if you look at Detroit, and, and, and what I like about that, especially going to that first win in 1936, they had they had become a, a pretty strong team. They were they had a, they had two brothers on the team, the Kilray brothers, whose nephew is Brian. Okay, Brian Kilray, the winningest coach ever, Canadian Junior History, the Coach of the Year in Canada is named after him, and Memorial Cup winning coach, and scored the first goal ever in Los Angeles King history. He played a little bit in the NHL, but he was mostly in the minors in the old six team league. I like to tell the story that. Primarily in those days, the NHL with six teams had three lines. So that's 18 centermen. I think Brian Kilray was the 19th best centerman in the world for a number of years. He just couldn't crack that NHL lineup. You know, he was property of the Red Wings. He played one game for them, but he was mostly in the minors with with the Springfield uh, Indians, uh, run owned and operated by Eddie Shore. And uh, Killer's written, there's a couple books on him and they're spectacular reads. But his uncles were teammates on Detroit in 36 and then again in 37, and, and you know, Paulie, um, we're going through, obviously, just the most trying time of our lives globally right now, and we know we're going to come out of it, and historically, there's been some other bad ones, not the least of which is the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919, and the millions of lives it took, including the cancellation of the Stanley Cup, but the depression, when the stock market crash in 29, absolutely decimated families and individuals and companies and businesses and including pro sports and we all know about the great depression i mean it's a significant part of history and detroit like many major cities with factories and and especially with the car industry and everything they were they were decimated and in the mid 1930s detroit you know whether you call it luck 
or just circumstances, but collectively on the sports front, they came out of it in such such an unbelievable way, starting with the Detroit Tigers winning the World Series in 1935, the Detroit Lions were the NFL champions in 1935, yet Joe Lewis from Detroit, known as a Brown Bomber, became the heavyweight boxing champion. Yet a guy named Gar Wood, who became the champion of powerboat racing and was the first man ever to go 100 miles an hour on the water. You had a runner named Eddie Tolan. His nickname was the Midnight Express. And he was a, a black man from Detroit who won gold medals in the 1932 Summer Olympics in the 102-meter uh, races, and he maintained a, a presence uh, on the track through the mid-1930s. So you had him. And then along come the Detroit Red Wings who started as the Detroit Cougars in 1926, became the Detroit Falcons in 1930, and then the Red Wings in 1933, 32-33. Got the crest with the winged wheel, James Norris, and the whole nine yards. And they win the cup in 1936, and they repeat it in 1937. I think that's pretty significant. And I just wanted to say one other thing. I mentioned a couple of teammates with the Kilray boys. So they had another guy playing in the minors that they signed. And they, they, even back then, Paulie, don't forget, there were scouts. You still had scouts finding your talent. And there was a guy, he was Canadian, he was from Fergus, Ontario, and his name was Wilford McDonald, okay? He went by the nickname Bucko. He got it as a kid because <laughs> Bucko, his family had an Irish heritage. And Bucko was is Irish slang for toughness or a fighter. Well, he's a and he got that as an early boy. He was always a big, burly kid. And, and he got Bucko as a name, and it stuck forever. And he was from Fergus, Ontario. And he really wasn't much of a hockey player. He could skate, but he didn't really care about hockey. What he really cared about was lacrosse, which was really Canada's national sport officially for decades Hockey has always sort of been our de facto national sport, and then it became our national sport in April of 1994. They passed a bill in the House saying, let's just make it official on paper, even though after Henderson scored in 72, we all know where our bread was buttered and was on the frozen pond. That said, and a Canadian McDonald team, was a lacrosse and a Canadian player. team hasn't won a Stanley Cup since. <laughs> that's right that's right but we all know the makeup of the rosters so, so it, it uh including in 1936 and 37 but so mcdonald is a lacrosse player and he ends up winning a man cup which is the emblematic of of the senior championship in canada and then he turns pro and he's playing pro lacrosse and he plays pro lacrosse until the league folds and the league folds because of the depression and he doesn't know what to do. And they say, well, look, you're a big man. You love to hit. You can fight a bit. Can you still skate? And he said, yeah, I can still skate. Well, we'll sign you. So he signed on this team in Detroit in the minors. And the Red Wings had a scout out there. And they saw him just crushing everybody. So they brought him up to the Red Wings in 1935. And he started playing for the Red Wings. And he was with the team in 35-36. So that's the year, Paulie. That in game one of the finals, 
against the Montreal Maroons, the very first game of the playoffs in 1936, is the longest game in NHL history. It went six overtime periods, and the goal was scored at the 16-minute, 30-second mark by Mud Brunito. Now, the story goes that before the game, Bucko McDonald was just, you know, he was milling around. He was there an hour and a half before the game. There were fans. It wasn't like today with the security and you're separated and all that, right? So he's milling around and a fan comes up and he's talking to Bucko and he says, uh, I love the way you play. You've been such a fantastic addition this year. I think we're going all the way. He says, I'll tell you what, Bucko, I know you like to throw body checks out there. He said, I'm going to give you $5 and I'll meet you here after the game. I will give you $5 for every hit you throw tonight. <laughs> every hit. And Bucko said, hey, man, you don't, you don't have to do that. And he said, no, listen, it'd be my pleasure. It'd be my pleasure. I'll see you right here after the game. And Bucko said, all right, well, look it. You know, I mean, we're in the playoffs and everything. I don't know I'll be able to hang around much, but sure, I'll see you after the game. Well, who could know the game was going to go till 2.25 oh, a.m., oh right? <laughs> so what happened was they tracked <laughs> Bucko's hits that night, okay? he Now, this was not an NHL statistic. But they agreed on a third party, a friend of the guys who said, look, we'll count them. And we're, we, you know, I mean, it was just sort of a casual thing, a fan talking to a player, telling yeah. him how much he admired him, wanted to do something a little different, figured Bucko would throw maybe six, seven hits, and he'd give <laughs> the guy 40 bucks after. Paulie, 40 bucks, 1936. You know what I'm Huge. saying? Yeah. So, so it, it, the guy obviously was well healed, had some, had some disposable money. His friends said they'd track it, and then the game goes on forever. Zero, zero. No goals. Finally ends one nothing. Bucko comes out of the room. Who's there? Buddy and his friend. And Bucko goes up and says, I, cannot, I can't believe you guys stayed. Because two-thirds of the, of, of the crowd left, right? Yeah. So Bucko says, hey, man, listen, I don't even know. He said, no. He said, Bucko, we absolutely counted. We counted everything. And you threw 30 seven hits and I'm giving you $185 right now. And he peeled off the money and he gave it to him at the conclusion of that game. Buckle McDonald, $185 cash. First game of the playoffs in 1936, 1937. Buckle wins another Stanley cup with Detroit. He's a very, very steady defenseman. I think he may have even made a second all-star team. If I'm not mistaken, <clears throat> fell out of favor a few years later, as players do. Mm-hmm. Ends up going to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, plays a couple of years for them. Gets his name on another Stanley Cup. Helps them win the Cup in 42. Now, he wasn't on the roster those last few games. They actually went back and beat his old team, the Detroit Red Wings. That was the, the series where where Detroit won the first three, and Toronto came back and won the next four. Buckle wasn't in the lineup those last few games, but he was still part of that team all year. Got his name legitimately so on the cup, his third one. And then a few years later, uh, he retired. And he ended up going back and settling in Ontario, uh, not too far from where he grew up, in and around the Perry Sound area. And then in the late 1950s, they asked him if, you know, with his hockey experience, if he would mind coaching minor hockey. They said, we got a peewee team this year and we don't have a coach. And and he said, well, I'm getting some offers to coach pro. But uh, he said, sure, I've been around here for a few years. I'd like to give back. I'll coach the team. And he said, by the way, uh, 
keep an eye on this. We got a hotshot kid in the area here, and and uh, he's a forward, and he scores like 10 goals a game. And Bucko just rolled his eyes, said, oh, yeah, okay. Went out first practice, and he got everybody's name, and he came to the hotshot kid, and he said, what's your name, kid? And the kid said, uh, this is 1958. And the kid said, uh, Bobby Orr. And he said, okay. So they start playing, and uh, Bobby's playing up front. And after four or five games, Buckle came to him. He said, you know what, son? You're something else. You're probably one of the best young players I've ever seen in my life, but I think you're in the wrong position. And, and Bobby said, well, my dad and all his friends say I should be a centerman, I should be a forward, and I can, I can score the most goals and do that. And he said, no, the way you skate, the way you see the game, you'd be a much better defenseman. I'm going to move you back to defense because I'm the coach, and that's what I'm going to do. And Bobby's dad and a couple other guys went down to visit Mr. McDonald at the arena one night and had a little conversation. And Bucko uh, said, I didn't want to play it, boys, because if I'm coaching this man, this young boy, he's staying on defense. And let's just say he was persuasive. And, uh, and young Robert Gordon Orr, at 11 years of age, played defense for the first time ever in his life. Wow. Thanks to Bucko McDonald. Unbelievable. And Rest is history. That is incredible. <laughs> what a road that took. Holy cow. How about that, eh? That's phenomenal. <laughs> Isn't that a good one? That is absolutely phenomenal. How do you, you can't even, you yeah, couldn't write I, that. I, I, you couldn't write that for a movie. <laughs> brilliant. I love it. I, lo- I love it. I, I, uh, as you know, Polly, I got hundreds of them. And I just think that, uh, uh, when I was reading about the Red Wings yesterday and, 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 uh, going over it, the anniversary of, and I was looking at the roster and, you know, uh, Brian Kilray had three uncles and, and Wally Heck and Kenny. And I never met Wally and Heck who were on that Red Wing team, but Kenny was on uh, the later team, uh, that 43 Red Wing team. He's a little bit younger and I used to drink with him. At a bar in Ottawa, the Ottawa Nepean Sports Club. It's still open to this day. And in the uh, in the 1980s, I used to sit in there at that little bar area they had up front with Gordy Hamilton and Bruce Hamilton and Kenny Kilray and his dear friend Connie Brown, and and uh, other guys would come in there like uh, uh, Timmy Higgins' uh, father used to come by. Anyways, I would sit there, man. I was a sponge. I was just a sponge. I I'm, I'd say ten words in two hours. And drink beer with them and uh, just listen to all the stories. And I, I got a lot of that stuff from them. And years later, when the internet came along and different books had different information and you could verify some of this stuff and look it up, I did that. And I, but I never, ever forgot where I first heard some of those stories. Like, uh, I remember when I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, working for the Red Wing alumni in 1991. And and uh, Carl Liscom was there. If you look up Carl Liscom, that's a name I guarantee everybody listening right now, nobody's heard of. Carl Liscom was a hell of a hockey player. And he was with those Wings teams in the late 30s. And when Bill Mosienko scored three goals in 21 seconds for Chicago in 1952, the record that he broke was held by Carl Liscom. And he set it with Detroit in 1938. And he was from a town in the Ottawa Valley called Perth. Perth, Ontario. It's one of the oldest towns in Canada. It's got the oldest golf course in Canada. One of the oldest golf courses in, in the world. And and um, and I, I sat there with Carl Liscom and listened to him 
<laughs> tell me stories about Bucko McDonald <laughs> and how he could hit. And he, 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 I told him that what, what Kenny Kilray told me about that, that hitting in 1936. And he said, that's a hundred percent true. That's a true story. And I went, okay, you know what? I've heard that now from two guys who played at that time. That's good enough for me. That's good enough for me. I, I don't, I don't need anybody else to say I was, it was this or it was that. They, they, yeah. they can all go fly a kite. I heard it from two guys who, who played with Bucko, and that's good enough for me. And I love it. And I love just the connection to it with Bob Yor. I think it's a fabulous story. Right up there with Penty last week. <laughs> <laughs> I love the names. Penty and Bucko, baby. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. I think Bucko died, I think, in, uh, I want to say 1991. I'm not 100% certain, but somewhere around there. He was almost 80, lived a good life. But, uh, uh, you know, huge impact. I mean, if you Google him, you'll see. He, he, he's in the Lacrosse Hall of Fame. He, he, that's a significant accomplishment as far as I'm concerned. I mean, hockey is a tough sport, and so is rugby, and obviously the hitting in football is insane. But boy, oh boy, lacrosse doesn't take a backseat to anybody. I mean, I never played it. I played a handful of times in high school. We just didn't have it when I was growing up, and I just paced, I basically lived in my, slept in my hockey equipment anyway. But, but I got a lot of respect for lacrosse players. And you read up on Bucko, and he was a Hall of Famer. You know, and when the pro lacrosse league folded, he says, oh, well, and, you know, I'll go, okay, I'll go, I'll try hockey. You know, I mean, I can skate a bit, but, you know, in those days, you, you obviously didn't have to, he didn't have to be a Howie Morenz or a Cy Danany or <clears throat> a Rose Joliet or an Eddie Shore. He just needed to be capable, and he was. And the fact that he was a, a regular for Detroit when they won those two Stanley Cups, to me, is significant. I think that's pretty damn good. And, wow. and, uh, so he should be acknowledged for that. And the, the Bob Yor thing is just icing on the cake. <laughs> <laughs> That's just unreal. That's just a trip. No, hey, look, man, it's, uh, you know, we were just talking about it last week, too. Like I said, these, these, you know, I'm I'm sure you could rail off all the more popular names that were on those championship teams, you know what I'm saying? And, and we've talked about, like I said, these, these secondary or third guys or these other guys that made their way onto these teams. And that's just another incredible story. And then, obviously, the uh, Bobby Orr thing is just uh, it's, it's just too much. It's just crazy. And as far as, you know, you're talking about lacrosse, man. You know, when you get hit in hockey um, or even even football, if you're a receiver or something, you're, you're, you're usually in some sort of motion as you get hit. Yeah. In lacrosse, you pretty much probably have your feet planted when somebody comes on top of you. <laughs> you know? Oh, ex- exactly. It's, it's, it's tough, man. I'll tell you what, you were talking about hurling off the, off the, the top of the show, and, oh. and I, only, I only screwed around once with a hurling stick in a field in, uh, in Blackrock, just outside of Dublin, where uh, one of my dad's brothers and his family lived, and they had a big park there, and, and they asked me if I wanted to go out and try it. Actually, it was Seamus. My, my late cousin Seamus and his friends were going out to, for an afternoon of hurling, and I went out there, and I, I, that first time that stick came around my head, I was throwing right hands. And they said... <laughs> Liam, you can't do that. That's part of the game. And I said, if that's part of the game, there's about four of us are going to the hospital here in about five minutes. And and he said, no, man, you've got to gear it back, kid. Gear it back. But it's, uh, you know, lacrosse is the same thing, right? I mean, you just have to understand that uh, 
certain elements uh, are just different than when you're carrying a stick and a puck. But you make a great point about that 36-cup team. I mean, you look at Marty Berry, like legendary name, the Kilray brothers. Gordy Pettinger and his brother Eric won Stanley Cups on four different teams. Herbie Lewis, Larry Ory, Sid Howe, uh, Ottawa guy, had six-goal game. Mud Brunato, of course, scored the goal in the longest game ever. He also scored other overtime goals. His brother, Ed, scored an overtime goal later for Detroit. Pete Kelly scored a cup-winning goal. Doug Young was the Red Wing captain. Ebby Goodfellow won the Hart Trophy one year. Ralph Scotty Bowman, no relation to uh, the Scotty Bowman, the coach, but Ralph Scotty Bowman uh, took the um, um, first-ever penalty shot in, uh, in, in NHL history. Uh, in 1934, he was on that Red Wing Cup team. Normie Smith was a goalie, one of Vezina. Yeah, man. And then he had Buckle. Uh, I mean, they they had a lot of guys that, uh, if if you go back in time, are familiar in terms of hockey history. So I just thought it was neat, you know. It's a neat American accomplishment. They're the first team to win back-to-back cups. The Stanley Cup was around since 1893. First American team to win were Seattle in 1917. First American team to compete in the final were Portland in 1916. And and then, uh, you know, you had American teams starting to win in 1928 with the, with the New York Rangers, your very own New York Rangers. And you know something else, Paulie, that 37 win by Detroit, and we touched on it talking about uh, the Rangers last week because the, the Rangers played one home game in that best of five, and then they got punted out because of the circus. And they had to play the remaining four games in Detroit. It was a best of five that they lost three games to two. And the rest of the four games are played in Detroit. There's another year that the Rangers could have possibly won a cup and and uh, got screwed out because of circus. So be it. But, uh, I, you know, it's just I'm adamant about that point, too. Anyway, I digress. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's great stuff. I love it. It absolutely is. And I'll tell you, man, I've, I'll, I'll play hockey anytime without a face cage or a helmet. Uh, but you wouldn't get me in a hurley match, man. That's like uh, that's like carrying a, a case of eggs through through helicopters, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, my dad, my my late father used to tell me when he was a boy and he was playing, and and uh, I think he only played at Croke Park one time when he was fourteen or fifteen. Dad says he wasn't very good. He was nowhere near good as his best friend. His best friend, is, and my dad's first name was Noel, and his best friend's name was Noel. And it's just, you know, when you're told the story by your dad and you're eight, nine or 10, like they stick forever, you know, they, you stick forever. I, I remember talking to my dad in 1969, asking him, not knowing, you know, in Canada, if he was going to have to go to Vietnam or not. I remember asking him that, you know, in the summer of 69, sitting on the cars road, I said, dad, are you going to have to go to war? And he said, no, son, not going to have to go. And, and I, I, you know, I was asking him, I was getting a few fights at school and stuff. And he said, you know, Liam, you should only fight for the four F's family, freedom, flag, and friends. Yeah, that's the only time you should really ever, ever really want to go. And, and, uh, you know, that, that stuck with me. And then it also stuck. He used to talk all the time about his best friend who was one of the best hurlers in Dublin named Noel Drumgool. <laughs> you get a better name than that. Noel Drumgool. And we're talking, we're talking mid-1940s, you know, when the war is ending and the world is coming up for air and, and they were flooding the parks and flooding the, the, the pitches and, and hurling matches were all the rage. And my dad said Noel Drumgool was just amazing. And I'll, I never forgot that. So it's funny with, with sticks, eh? There you go, folks. You'll always learn a new name here on Sticks and Taps. <laughs> and they're all real. Nothing made up here, folks. 
great you, stuff, you man. You can't make up Bucko McDonald. No, not at all. <laughs> love it, love it. All right, buddy. Well, take us from the 30s to uh, the year of 1996, 1997. And Wayne Gretzky leaves the Blues. He signs with my beloved yeah. New York Strangers. Yeah. Well, I think that was his swan song, really. I think he was so excited to come to the to the hub of the world, really, uh, with New York. And, and I think he probably was hoping that would be his final stay, whatever it brought. And we know now it was. And 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 there he was with three seasons in New York. And, and that run in 97, uh, to me, he carried that Ranger team. I, I think he was twice the player Messier was. And if you look offensively, what he did on the ice, and he had a, he had his final ever playoff hat trick against Florida. He uh, 97 points that year. 97 points, and he was 36 years old. 72 assists. 72 yeah. helpers on that squad. Led, led, led the league. I think he tied with Mario, I think, right? Were they not tied, I think, for the league lead in assists? And, you know, when he did leave Pauly, and it was discussed on the local radio here today, I was listening to the guys talk about it, and, you know, and I've talked to Wayne a little bit about it. I mean, the few times I have had an opportunity to be around him hasn't really been dominated by so much about how he went out but all he did say to me he said look man I scored nine goals that year that's what he said you know I was done like I just I couldn't find the holes anymore uh, I, I'd lost a step and I just didn't have the ability to go where I used to be able to go and generate the offense and and the only thing that made him pause just for five seconds that I asked him I said Wayne I, you don't have to go into depth on this but I'm gonna ask you a question the general manager of the Rangers at the time was Neil Smith. Yep. And the story goes that he refused to make a trade with Florida for Pavel Bure. And uh, the, uh, he didn't want to give up Manny Maholtra, allegedly. Allegedly, because Neil didn't want Maholtra part of the package, they couldn't make the deal with Bure. And I think... <clears throat> that had they brought Burray in for 99-2000, that Wayne stays one more year. And I'll tell you right now, that would have that would have absolutely rejuvenated Wayne and I think Pavel, because I think after he went to the finals with Vancouver in 94, even though he had some big seasons goal-scoring-wise after that, I don't think he ever gave a shit after that. I, I, I think he mailed in more often than not. Uh, how he played and when he chose to 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 compete because of what he went through in 94 and he saw just the level of commitment that you have to have and to get that close let's be honest i mean if the if the canucks managed to beat new york in 94 pavel probably wins the con smythe and and uh and i don't think he was ever the same player after that and i think had that trade been made i think uh and i said that to wayne i said what if neil pulls the trigger and brings Burray in. And I wasn't just making that up. Everybody and their brother in 99 was talking that that trade was on the books. And he just kind of, he kind of looked at me and he just smiled. And he said, well, we'll never know. And, and he left it at that. And I said, okay, fair enough. You know, I've got to discuss speculation. I get that. Most guys don't like to anyway. Yeah. But, um, but I think, Paulie, that, and you were there, that you were around in those days, you know. Yeah. And now we're not talking, now we're not going back to 1930s. This is, 19, <laughs> you know, this is. 99-2000, New York Rangers. I know it's 20 years ago, but still, that's not that long ago. And and uh, I think if Burray comes, Wayne stays. But uh, the fact that today is the anniversary of his final game ever, and he skated on Madison Square Gardens, and Jagger was there, and, 
and, and got the winner in, in Pittsburgh. And, and we had him, of course, here in Ottawa the night before. And, you know, and I, I had a media pass that night, Polly, and I was part of 270 accredited media in Ottawa wow. that night. They, they had to take over. Uh, they, ha- they, they had to sort of makeshift an entire other wing just to put the media and when we went in downstairs after they opened up all of the entire downstairs to fit everybody in, all the cameras, all the media, all the radio, all the bodies, and I, I'll never forget it. I got two questions in on uh, on international TV. I got two questions into Wayne, and don't forget, I worked that whole season with his youngest brother. Wow, Glenn. Every 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 Tuesday morning, I was getting on a plane. And flying to a different part of Canada for 26 consecutive weeks. Unbelievable. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of the greatest gigs of my life. I got it through a friend named Kenny Craig who hired me. And uh, it was a Labatt gig, the beer company. And and uh, it was called Labatt Blue Out of the Blue. And, and we went to a different sports bar in Canada. And Glenn Gretzky was part of our crew. Now, he did next to nothing. And his only real, um, his only real, uh, what was driving him? What's the word I'm looking for? The only, his motivation okay. was um, every week we were assigned um, two models uh, to work with us, and his his goal was to sleep with both of them. <laughs> Can I say that? Is, uh, are we live? Is this on? Check one, two. Oh, <laughs> uh, too much. And you know what he told me one night in Newfoundland? I don't know. Can you? <laughs> yeah, this is not X-rated. It's not X-rated. He says he's, he's having about his seventh triple because he struck out, right? He went over for two. And he, and he said, uh, ah, Liam, I didn't go too well tonight. <laughs> and I said, yeah. I know, Glenn, as usual, we didn't see you really around the production or nothing, but that's okay. <laughs> and he says, uh, don't worry. I'm going back to the hotel after, and I'll take care of everything. I said, oh, yeah, what, what are you going to do? How are you going to do that? He says, oh, it's easy. If I go over to, all I do is play the G card. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Out comes the Gretzky card. And uh, that, that has a number of different connotations. But you know what? Became very close friends. With Glenn, obviously, as you can imagine, and at around probably we started those in October of '98, and in um, I guess it was January, we were in Oshawa, Ontario. I was on stage, and a question came from the crowd. My job was to keep everybody entertained that had come to the bar that was there for the TV taping, and after the TV taping, it was my job to keep them somewhat entertained as best as possible until the game started so that everybody would hang around and see themselves on TV in the second intermission. So it was all designed to bring some business to the bar, support the brand, and be part of the whole package. So that was my job. And and I would obviously do it with hockey trivia. So I'd stand on stage and just just take, you know, just do hockey trivia for like 90 minutes. And I was up there just being drilled as I was every week with questions. And of course, you know, I mean, just pounding the pints back. And I, uh, this guy asked me a question about Wayne and about when he scored point number 1851 to, to beat Gordie Howe at, you know, 10 years earlier. 
1989. I said, oh, yeah. I said, I said, not only that, I said, did you know <laughs> that when uh, Wayne passed Gordy Howe that night against his old team, Edmonton, by scoring that goal, uh, uh, that um, uh, for point number 1,851, I said, you know, his first goal in the NHL came 10 years and one day earlier. And the guy said, oh, yeah, yeah, against Vancouver, right? And I said, yeah, against Vancouver, goaltender Glenn Hanlon, October 14th, 79, tied the game at four, and assisted by Brett Callaghan and Blair McDonald. And he said, yeah, okay, I didn't know all that, but I knew some of that. And I said, do you know what the time of the goal was? This was first goal ever, Wayne's first ever goal in the NHL. The guy went, no, I said, 1851. Same number as the number of points that he needed to pass Gordie Howe 10 years and a day later. Come on. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, I'm the first guy to I'm the first guy to bring that to public. So I say that on stage in Oshawa, and Glenn Gretzky is sitting there, you know, uh nursing his ninth triple and eyeing up the models and and uh probably trying to figure out which one he's gonna go for. And then he looks at me like his head just snapped around. And I got off the microphone and he comes over and he says, What'd you just say? And I told him and he says, BS. And I said, no, man, it's true. Like, yeah, I wouldn't make that up. And he said, well, I don't believe you. And I said, well, it's true. And he said, well, I'm going to phone Wally right now. I'm going to phone his dad right now. I said, give him a call. And he went in the office and he phoned his dad. And he came back to me and he says, my dad doesn't know that that's true or not. And I said, well, you just got to get a game summary. I mean, the internet is only a few, few years old, eh, Polly? So yeah. it wasn't as easy to go online and find that information immediately. But I said, I'll tell you what, make whatever bet you want. And so uh, he came back about an hour later. He said, okay, I talked to my dad. He phoned Wayne. Wayne says he doesn't remember the time of his first goal, and he can't believe that's true. And I said, well, I'm here to tell you, I'm swearing on, on my parents' lives that that's true. And he said, okay, we're going to check it out. And if that's true, then you're coming to Brantford, and, and we're, we're going to go meet Wally. And I said, okay. Oh, so wow. by the time we next convened, we, we had, our next one was in Toronto. And the next week, and and uh, no cell phones or nothing in those days, so no emails. I didn't have an email or anything. So I I arrive in Toronto on t on the Tuesday, flew out Tuesday morning, get there in the hotel. Glenn's in the lobby. I ran into him, and he says, well, you're something else, man. Uh, 100% true. Wayne scored his first goal, the 1851 mark, and we know he passed Gordy, 1,851, so everybody wants to meet you. Uh, so after we, uh, tonight, um, we do our show, and tomorrow uh, we're going to Brantford. We're going to the homestead. I said, oh, my God. I said, oh, fan-freaking-tastic. So our whole crew went. You know, there were six, like five or six of us, and, and uh, we piled into a van the next day, and we went to Brantford, and we spent four hours in the homestead, and, and uh, I got a picture. I posted it today on Twitter, but I'll post it again because I posted it in a thread, so you may not have seen it, of, of me on the couch with uh, Walter, and uh, I'll tell you something else, Polly. that upstairs in the house where Wayne grew up on Verardi Drive, 42 Verardi Drive in Brantford, there is, there is nothing on the walls upstairs, nothing except one painting, one picture. It's a painting, actually. Uh -huh. And uh, it's, it's a painting of um, um, a landing craft carrier landing on June 6th, 1944 on D-Day, and it has a little audio clip in the bottom of the painting, and you go over and you push it, 
and it's it's one of the BBC guys that traveled that went in country with with a number of the crafts that landed all across the beaches. I'm sure they did this in in the, for some you know at uh, at, uh, at 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 Sword Beach and and some of the some of the incredible uh, ones that the Americans had Utah and whatnot. And and uh, you push it, and it's the actual voice of one of the sergeants on the craft as he's preparing the men to land. And it's in that painting. That's the only thing upstairs in the home. You go downstairs and <laughs> you go downstairs and it's the shrine <laughs> of all shrines. Wow. I mean, there is it. There cannot be another home in the world that has got every, like it, Walter had everything down there that Wayne gave him over the years. And I was there for four hours talking to Wally and, and, um, and uh, Wayne's late mother, Phyllis, was still alive. And I sat at the kitchen table with her talking for about 90 minutes. And then I was with the rest of the time. And I've got a picture of me and Wally on the couch downstairs. And I'm interviewing him on my little recorder for my radio show. And then we have lunch there. And then I say, well, boys, we got another treat for you. I, <laughs> what, what could possibly beat this? <laughs> well, we're piling in the two vans. And we're leaving. And we're going to Buffalo. Because the Rangers are playing the Sabres tonight, and Wayne got us a suite. Oh. So we're all going to the game, and we're going to meet Wayne after the game. Oh and God. so we piled into two vans, and we drove across the border, down to Buffalo, watched the Rangers play the Sabres, and we they then we went downstairs after the game in a special blocked-in area, and in he came. And Wayne came in, and, and uh, we were all there. Don't forget, his father was there, and his father's best friend, this Italian guy's name, his first name was Johnny. I don't remember his last name, but he went everywhere with Wally, and, and it was our crew and, and a few others. We went down in two vans. It was about eight or nine of us, and Wayne went around everybody, and he came to me and introduced myself, and he said, oh, you're the stats guy. And I said, uh, yeah, I guess so. And he said, oh, that's quite something. That's quite something. I, I I didn't know that. And I said, oh, yeah, well, it's, you know, just one of those cool things, neat anecdote sort of things. And and then he stood back and, and he said, uh, listen, uh, are you guys, uh, you know, are you guys parents? And this is in 1999, right? So I had a, I had a two-year-old and a one-year-old, a two-year-old and a three-year-old at home. And everybody, everybody there in our crew was a parent. Everybody yeah. had a young family. And Wayne said, uh, would you guys like some programs from Nagano signed, like from the Olympics? And we just looked like our jaws just hit the floor. And we said, yeah, love it. And he said, give me all your kids' names. And he went around to each of us, one at a time, got our children's names, wrote the children's names down, went over to his dad, got his dad to sign it first, all of them, and then he came back around us individually and signed them for our children and then gave us the programs That's from amazing. Nagano. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a moment, man. And then he, uh, and th and then he left. And we're inside and we're having a nightcap before we left. And we were inside for about 30 minutes. And then we walked out down the hallway and we could hear a commotion. We get around the corner and there's Wayne still signing autographs. Like he left us. This is 30 minutes later. And these are people who just came downstairs on just the hope that they could get a glance of the guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, he's still there signing. And uh, <clears throat> I'll tell you what, man. That guy, uh, you know, I mean, the statistics are insane, right? You can go down a bunch of different roads, but uh, that's that's just some of my. And then, of course, you know, meeting him in Fort McMurray in 2014, and he ends up writing the forward to my third book, and I spent the weekend with him, and then I ended up telling him about that greatest, you know, 
when when he scored his 50th goal in game number 39 and I asked him who served the penalty for illegal celebration on the Oilers that Kerry Fraser called that night the second time ever in NHL history it was ever called <laughs> he, there's 18 guys on the Oilers roster that played that night and he named 17 of them he couldn't get the guy who served the penalty and it was it was Doug Hicks and I oh, said it was man. Doug Hicks and he went oh Jesus he said Doug used to come in the dressing room and tell me and mess that he was Bobby Orr's last defense partner ever in Chicago in 78. And I said, oh, yeah? Well, let's find out. So I said, I, I emailed Bobby while we're driving around the limo in Fort McMurray. And and five minutes later, my phone buzzes, and I look, and it's Bobby Orr. And he says, hey, Liam, yeah, tell Gretz I said hi and tell him that uh, Doug was right. He was my last D partner ever in the NHL with the Chicago Blackhawks. So I hold up my phone, and Wayne's way over by the driver at the front end of this super-stretched limo on a bus frame, fully stocked. We're just giving her. And and uh, I hold up my phone. I'm in there with Brian Trotche, Kelly Chase, Darren Langdon, Marty McSorley, Wayne Gretzky, and the late Dave Simanko. That's who's in the limo with me. Wow. And, and I hold up my phone, and I say, uh, Hey, Wayne, uh, Bobby says you're right. And Wayne comes across that limo <laughs> like he's like he's – Ben Johnson and Carl Lewis racing in 88 and he grabs my wrist and turns it over and says, who's that? And I said, well, Wayne, it's Bobby Orr. You've only met him a hundred times. I mean, he's, he's saying that you're right. Doug Hicks was his last partner. He said, look, and Wayne just looks at it. his eyes are big as saucers. And he's saying, Hey, look, Hey, look, Bobby says I'm right. Bobby says I'm right. <laughs> he's like a 10 year old kid. <laughs> Anyways, the end of the weekend, I said, look, I'm writing my third book and, and he said, uh, he said, I, you know, I said, uh, I was wondering if you could write the forward and everything. He says, I'll tell you what. He says, not only will I write the forward, I'll go one better. What are you doing right now? Because me and uh, me and Marty are getting back in the jet and we're flying to Phoenix. And I know you like to golf because Brad Fritch told me you like to golf. And we'll get you some clubs and you can come play with me and Marty tomorrow in Phoenix. Jump on the jet. Don't worry about it. We'll get you home. And. I just looked at this in the hotel lobby in Fort Mac, 2014. And I just looked at him. I said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't believe it, but I can't do it. And he said, you're kidding. Like, why not? And I said, my son's got a playoff game tomorrow night. I'm the head coach. I, I got to be there. Wow. Got to be there. And he said, uh, he said exactly what you just did. He said, well, that's pretty much the greatest no I've ever heard. So uh, he <laughs> said, uh, good enough. And we shook hands and. He, he went with uh, with Marty and got on his plane and went, went to Phoenix. And I went to the airport, got in my plane, came back to Ottawa. Coached the next night, and we kicked ass. <laughs> ah, you're a good man for it, brother. <laughs> that is the best anyway. no. Best no ever, man. No doubt. Yeah. Man, that's a super story, man. And I know you've got, jeez, uh, Gretz, man. Unbelievable, man. That's just great stuff. I mean, just I'm just envisioning you guys in the in the car together and the limo together and stuff. And oh, you know what, Paulie? We we're, our gig was we drive around to the events, and this is Sean Chalk. Sean Paul put all this on. I don't know if he listens to these podcasts or not, but just an unbelievable man gives back like you wouldn't believe. And this was a fundraiser for the men's and women's hockey team for Keanu College in Fort McMurray. And Sean did all of this and brought us all in. And my job. Uh, besides entertaining at the main dinner that night, 700 people on an arena floor. I did hockey trivia in front of Brian Trotche standing in front of me with his mouth down to the floor saying, are you, you're from Mars or something, right? And like, he just couldn't believe it. But, but when we'd go to the, to the places and Wayne's job was to do, to sign 9,000 autographs. My job was to keep everybody sort of entertained. 
you know, much like the Labatt gig in, in, uh, in 99, in 98, 99. And we'd get back in the limo and all Wayne wanted to know, what'd you get asked? What'd you get asked? Did you get stumped? <laughs> what was it? What was the questions? What was the questions? Don't tell me the answer. I, I just want the questions. Like he's a, he's a, and, and even in the hotel, like the, the one morning we had breakfast together and he said, what are you doing this afternoon? And I said, well, I'm going to watch Canada Sweden play. They're playing the world championships. And he said, oh yeah, yeah. Like I think game starts before we got to do anything. And I said, yeah. He says, well, look at, you know, this, uh, this, uh, suite over here, whatever in the hotel. I said, no, not really. He said, well, just ask where it is. I, I'm, I'm going to be in there. I got to sign a few things. I'll get a TV brought in, come in there and watch the game with me. And I said, okay. So a couple hours later, I go downstairs. I find the suite. I open the door. I just couldn't believe it. What I saw, it was like, there was so much memorabilia in there. You could hardly move. And Wayne was in the middle of it all signing. These are for hospitals. These were for patients. These were for families with, you know, just, it's just unfreaking believable. Yeah. He's already got the TV in there and, and, uh, the game's about to start. I can I was there five, 10 minutes early. He says, Liam, you want a beer? And I says, matter of fact, I do. And he says, okay. And, and he tells a woman there to, or the guy, whoever gets a couple pints so guy comes back with a with one of those uh, containers, you know, those that you'd put your dirty dishes in after breakfast or something. He's got a full of ice and it's about eight or nine pints in there. And Wayne looks, he says, "Is that okay, Liam?" I said, "Well, that'll get us through the first period, Wayne." <laughs> <laughs> and he he just starts laughing. He says, "Oh, I keep forgetting. Yeah, I've heard stories about you." And then he says. Uh, he says, all right. He says, look it, I want to talk some WHA. What do you know? He says, I want to talk about Andre Lacroix. I want to talk about when Reggie Hull came over. I want to talk about when Frank Mahalovic. And we just got into it. And then and then uh, Canada's losing in the third period. They're down like 3-1. And and he's giving, I'm giving him the updates. All he's doing, Paulie, is signing, signing, signing. He can barely look up to see the game. And I'm giving him the updates what's happening. And I'm telling him how the game's going, and he's asking about the officiating, and he's asking me, you know what he's asking me? He's asking me, what are the line combinations? And who are they carrying the puck in? Are they shooting it in? Like, what, what are they? He's asking me, like, to break it down for him. So I'm telling him, and he's going, we're going to come back. We're going to come back. I, I'm telling you right now, the way you're describing it, we're going to come back. And we did, wow. you know? We came back, and, and, and I'm saying, look, I, I understand. It's probably, that's a fluke. It's a coincidence. But, but he's such... An, an, uh, an unbelievable observer and he wasn't even observing he was getting this verbally maybe glancing at the screen the odd time and I'm giving him basically play-by-play -play of a play-by-play -play. and and uh he just took from that and just thought that you know if things went if we just pushed here did this moved a few guys around we could do this and sure enough we came back just the things you for you, you don't forget eh and uh Amazing uh, to for him to have his anniversary today, and you and I taping today, and your connection with New York, and and uh, your love of the Rangers, and Wayne finishing in New in New York. I mean, you know, if, Times Square is. Let's be honest, it's one of these spots in the world, right? So, and and uh, for Wayne to have played there and finished there, and we all know he's, he's got the connection to Canada is locked in, and he played in Ottawa the night before as a bonus, and and I was there. That's great, but I love the fact that he, you know, because of you and me. That he that he finished in New York. I I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it is. Um, uh, geez, I, do, I love your Gretz stories. They're just fantastic, and and just what he's you know obviously uh the biggest star in the world as far as me coming of age in terms of uh, being a young kid there in in the late seventies and then him starting and being alive through all those years. But I gotta admit something to you. 
when he signed here, and I'm only going to speak for me, it was bittersweet. I wasn't all that into it because I was such, when Mark had come here and obviously getting us to the finals and winning, and, and Mark transformed this city. Like, he was the guy who just came in here and just, just saved the world for Ranger fans. And I know it's obvious because they won the Cup in, in 94, obviously. But there were so many things, even the, the, the season or two before they won the Cup and, and, then, and, and prior to Wayne getting here, you know, uh, Mess was such uh, an enigma. Um, you know, he had instantly become my favorite player. There was nobody who could touch him, even, you know, and I could tell you how much I love Dougie Gilmore, and this, this, I could run a list of different types of character guys and, and, and scores and everything. And then, obviously, yeah, you take Wayne and guys like Mario because they were so amazing, and I could tell you how much I love and respect Sidney Crosby just for the everything that he, not only has he done on the ice, but what Sid does off the ice. There's just a character thing about that guy that I just love so much and, and what he's meant to the NHL post-Wayne Gretzky and post-Mario Lemieux and everything else, you know, in addition to Ovechkin. But when Mess came, uh, when Wayne came here, I was I was upset because it was, um, and a lot of it had to do with the, the money. I think Wayne signed a ten million dollar one year contract, I believe it was, or something like that. I was just kind of look at the notes here too. Now, obviously, Wayne comes in here, and then they have the the the, the great playoff run there, and they beat the the Panthers uh, the next year, and then obviously they beat uh, the Devils again, and I think that was on Mother's Day. Uh, Graves again from behind the net. It was just an incredible run, obviously. And then yeah. uh, they were just too banged up and too tired by the time uh, uh, Lindros and, and the Flyers got to them there that year. I'm, I'm believing yeah. it was a big year. So, but I I thought it was going to cause problems with him being here. And sure enough, it was only a year, I believe, right? And then Mess takes off to the Canucks, you know? And it was over. I'm, right. I'm almost positive it was over money. And I had felt that, you know, as much as I loved and respected Wayne and everything and stuff like that. There was just something I thought it was like, man, it's it's just going to break the – it was breaking something here. Wayne had come here and, and, and built this whole thing and, and taken us to the mountain and everything and uh, what mess doing that, obviously. And then Wayne coming in, it was kind of – it was yeah, it was great. And after, But at that moment when he came in here, me as a, as a mess fan and, a, you know, the chemistry and the team and all that other stuff, and, and obviously it panned out in the playoffs here and the run and everything else. But ultimately it led to Mark – Leaving, I never felt that they were going to be able to maintain the two of them, you know, as far as their salary and stuff. And then there was the mm-hmm. whole thing with uh, because money back then was was tough. And Mark had done all this stuff for the franchise and everything, and then we lost him for that. And uh, you know, we can sit here and overanalyze why he left, when you know, all the stuff, the money and everything. But that always left a uh, it was bittersweet for me because I was such a mess fan. And um, seeing Wayne come in here, and it's not to tarnish who Wayne was or anything else. I, I think it, it was just it was they were too big. It was too it was too much having two big guys like that on the team at the time. And then after Wayne ended here, uh, it went downhill for the Rangers as an organization. After that, I think that's when the the huge playoff drought started and everything else. And yeah, you know, obviously <clears throat> Neil Smith leaving and everything else. So to me, there's um. Look, I will not deny it. It was amazing for him to put on the jersey, and it was uh, his last year here with us, and and the farewell uh, season, and everything else. And yeah, you sit back, and it's 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 fantastic that that Wayne even wanted to come here and finish his career here as a New York Ranger and everything else. But as a fan, and this is I can only speak for myself as a fan and a diehard fan of Mess, and we were all in the trenches with when Mess came here, and and then that you know the build up and just getting there, and then that Game Seven against Vancouver. And, 
You know, you, yeah. you talk about some of the, you know, the Rangers almost lost that series. I'll never forget that. We can go down man. the road. I know. Like, when Quinn turned the freaking, when he started telling Mimeso and Courtnall and all those guys just to hit everybody in sight. And they, did, <laughs> they beat the crap out of the Rangers in, in game uh, five and six to get it back to seven. That's I'll never right. Forget. Yeah. It was like, oh, my God, because Quinn had figured it out as far as I was concerned. And they just went out there and they beat the living hell out of the Rangers for those two games and got it back to game seven. But long story short, like I said, it was – um. You know that I'll, that's my initial feeling when when people talk about Wayne coming to New York. For me, it was like I think this is not going to be this is going to be bad. Something's and it ultimately was because of mess. I think because um, you know I was so invested in mess as a Lord Savior, <laughs> as a as a, and just the way mess played. I always loved him as a cap. You know, um, you know, and then what he did after Wayne left and, and bringing the Oilers to the Cup and winning again and all that stuff. There's just something about mess. That just I I always swing towards mess. If if you were to say, hey, which is the better guy? Obviously, on paper, it's it's Wayne, but um, mm-hmm. there was just something about mess. And and you have to understand, as a Ranger fan, what Mark did, and he did all the work, he did all the heavy loading, he did the he did everything, and he and he won the Stanley Cup here. And yeah. not, it's not to take anything away from Wayne coming here afterwards, and and it was more of a, a nostalgic kind of thing or whatever. But um, it led ultimately. To the the joy of winning that Stanley Cup, it was the beginning of the end of the Rangers organization as a as, as a tangible competitive organization, and that's not Wayne's fault. You know what I'm saying? But that's no, one of the, that's one no, of the, that's just one of the ways I look at it. I'm not sitting here and I don't curse Wayne Gretzky or anything. Like that. It's nothing like that. I love the guy. I have so much respect for him and everything. But I I don't know if you can. Do you see where I'm coming from? When, when oh we... yeah, I I see where you're coming from. I don't agree with it all, but but I know I have a friend of mine um, who is a uh, uh, I mean I mean it's it's Messier and then everybody else who's worn skates and hockey at any other time. I mean he's Messier first and foremost. There's nothing else that he'll you know he just uh, the world rises and goes to sleep at night under Mark Messier's shadow and uh, for him and and. Uh, I know other guys that are just huge Messier fans, and look, I'm I'm a huge Messier fan too. I I I think that's more, you know, in the Rangers' case after that run in '97, instead of building off that, and whether you want to cite the Burray deal with Maholter that could or or was that whatever that might have all entailed. Well, that's ridiculous. If Neil if Neil did that, if that's the truth, that's just ridiculous. Because even 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 for the price of admission to see Burray on on the same team with Gretzky at that time, would have just been amazing. I wouldn't have cared what they gave up at that time. Uh, maybe you know, maybe somebody listening, you know, might have some more insight as to who the rest of the players were involved. But I, I think what happened after that run in '97, and this is this is quite common. You see it. Uh, a team will take a run, and and maybe maybe make a semis or even make a final, and think that they've got something more of a nucleus when they don't. And there were just too many reclamation projects on New York going forward. I know Messier went out. Uh, from there, I can tell you, you want to talk about an abysmal run, you ask about uh, Vancouver fans when Mark came oh, there. And I not know. only that, he infuriated a lot of the old guard when he wore yep. 11, which yep. had never been formally retired for Wayne Mackey, but nobody had worn it. And of course, he, of course, what else could he wear but 11? But it was, I don't think that was ever handled properly. And, you know, Pat LaFontaine, go down the line. I mean, Adam Graves, these guys, they, they had two, they, even Brian Skrull and uh, Bill Berg, like just a lot of guys who were key components on previous teams that went deep in the playoffs or won cups, just didn't have anything going, uh, you know, that year after when Mass left. And Wayne still was putting up the numbers, you know. I mean, he averaged over a point a game still 
at the age of 37 now, you know, 37 turning 38 or whatever. I mean, it was, I think he had 90 points that second year. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not positive of that, but it was somewhere around there. And, and, uh, they just did, they just had too many guys who just didn't have enough. And, and it was, it was, you know, sayonara, but, uh, but you know what, bud, today it's really just about the man's career coming to an end 21 years ago, uh, after, uh, after what you could arguably say uh, for a lot of people, like he, he's the greatest ever in, in a lot of people's eyes. He's the greatest ever, you know, You'll so never see anything like it again. No way. No, glad, no, glad we won't. And everybody else that gets into the, all the BS about comparing the eras and stuff and the goaltending and everything. First of all, the, the amount of weak goals I see in the NHL in current times is, is every bit as a, as abysmal, uh, you know, I mean, when flukes go in and goals get through goaltenders, it still happens, but Really, and when you talk about Wayne and you start comparing, the first, the first, the first step for anybody that's doing any type of comparison of players in an era is you measure him against his peers. That's the first step, and you got a guy who was sixty-five points or more ahead of the second person in scoring in the league for six consecutive seasons. He had 100 points one time before Christmas. <laughs> he had four 200-point seasons. Like, it doesn't matter because everybody else, including Mario Lemieux and including numerous other superstars in the game at that time, weren't able to do what he did. Yep. So that's the first measure. And then when you start taking those guys out of the respective eras, you can start getting into the nuances and start drawing up your list, then it's always going to be probably forever, unless McDavid goes on to do something even more exhilarating, and he could quite well do. But it's going to be, you know, the Holy Trinity. And it's it's chronologically, it's Gordie Howe, Bobby Orr, and Wayne Gretzky. And it's wherever the chips fall, it's fallen on one of those three. The outlier is Mario, because some people think they show off a trait, a, a, a smidgen of hockey intelligence by saying, no. No, no, it's none of those guys. No, it's Mario Lemieux. It's Mario Lemieux. He's the most talent and uh, the most individual skill. And it wasn't for cancer and his bad back and the fact that he got tired of the hook and holding and retired and then cried. Uh, it's Mario Lemieux. And, and they, they think they sound smart when really they sound like idiots. So it's, it's one of those three. And, uh, and for me, it's Robert Gordon Orr. But you can make the case for Wayne and you can make the case for Gordy. But it's one of those three. And on this day, 21 years ago, <clears throat> one of those three took his final lap ever. And I can tell you, the night before in Ottawa was uh, was pretty emotional. And when the crowd started going nuts with five minutes to go, I was pretty happy to be in the building and, and witness all that because I've seen a lot of good stuff in my life, and I ranked that one right up there. Oh, amazing stuff. And here's the great Wayne. Great stuff, man. Raise him up. No doubt about it. Well said, my friend. Well said. And a great discussion. And man, me and you could, uh, I'd love to talk about Wayne, you know, even, even with my little, my little story there about my emotional side about Messier and Wayne Gretzky, <laughs> I, you know, yeah, I just, you kind of let your hair down there, brother. Yeah, well, like I, I said, it. you know, we're all, we're all kids, right? We're all fans, you know, you know, the Jersey switch and people come in and chemistry and all that stuff and you whatever. So that, that's never going to change outside the numbers, but you know, I just, he, he's the greatest. He's, he's just amazing. So it's great stuff. So that, that's, um. Like I said, we gotta we gotta do more on Wayne. 
because uh, he, he, he can never be forgotten. There's no doubt about it. So great stuff there. And as far as the Rangers and everything, too, was uh, that was just a wild couple of years there, too, as well, after the Cup. And like I said, we can go on and on and on. But let's leave it there. And we raise a glass to Wayne Gretzky. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, I'm far, I'm sure there's thousands of us here are very jealous of you sitting there in the car having a drink, watching games, seeing him sign autographs. Go yeah. on now. <laughs> you know. Go on with you now. Go, Go on, on with, with you. you. Bucko. Yeah. Go yeah, on, I, I, Bucko. I, I, I know I've been fortunate. Uh, you will be the first to admit it. I've had some good fortune to uh, to have some uh, some interaction with some of the game's greats, and I'm very thankful for it. And uh, and it sure is. Uh, it's added a lot to my life to have an opportunity to uh, to meet some of them, getting them a little bit better than just uh, watching their their magic on the ice. So it's it's been great. Good stuff, man. All right, pal. Well, let's put a, a little wrap on this show, as we always do here at Sticks and Taps, with the uh, yes, sir. Uh, an, o- an ode to a, an Irish classic. So uh, what do you have for us today? Well, Polly, you know, for a change, I thought we'd play a Clancy Brother tune. Get out of town now. <laughs> <laughs> I know Liam Burke is listening right now, and he's going, for the love of God. <laughs> There's more Irish music than the Clancy Brothers, but we're going to stick with what's tried and true. And... This is a song called Brennan on the Moor. Now, Polly, I want you to come back in time with me, okay? And we're going way back to the early 1800s in the south of Ireland in county, what is now known as County Cork. It wasn't a county then, but it was in the Cork area, and the towns were Kilworth and Cashel and Fermoy. And there was mountainous regions and beautiful countryside and these little towns and, and just men and women and their families going about their business, of course, always under the thumb of British rule. And as this young boy watched one day, a British army came into his home and took away his father and took away his sick mother. And although they left her with... Um, <clears throat> In, in hands that were supposed to take care of her well-being by being removed forcefully from their homes and, uh, and usurped of, of what they had raised as, as a crop at that time and, and, and just basically had their lives turned upside down. Uh, the, the mom died shortly after. So this young man named Willie Brennan decided that he didn't like that very much. And he thought, I'm going to make them pay when I'm older and able and can carry a gun, a blunderbuss. And he took to the hills and the mountains and, and, was, and had a horse and, and a few compatriots. And they would rob the wealthy and the landowners and the British when they could on the highways. And he became known as the most legendary highwayman at the time. And the time period, of course, is... A little bit inconclusive as to exactly how long he did this, but it was a period of years, could be as many as four or five or more, could be a little less. And to be fair, there are a couple of other stories that are different as to where and why and how he took up a gun and became known as this feared highwayman. But if you go back and research it, that is one of the stories. And if you think of the time period and what the entire country was under as British rule, not long after the rebellion of 1798, 
then I think it's very plausible that this happened. And his name was Willie Brennan. And eventually he was, he was, uh, it's kind of a little bit of a William Wallace story here where he was, he was uh, tricked, duped by a lady that he was spending some time with who alerted the authorities as to his whereabouts. And they came and they got him. And uh, it was a, a very quick trial and then a very quick hanging in uh, Clamel. And these areas, even the towns in County Cork I'm referring to, and Clamel itself, which is in essentially in Tipperary, these areas are very close to where the Clancy brothers grew up. And uh, Patty and Tommy Clancy used to tell a story of their mother singing uh, a version of the song about Willie Brennan. And so when they released one of their albums in the early 60s, the name of it escapes me right now, but it's on there, and they they titled it Brennan on the Moor. And it's about Willie Brennan, the highwayman, who took on and robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. This this was an Irish version of Robin Hood in the early know. 1800s, and it's a great song, and it's a great story, and it's all true. And uh, and that's that's what our go out song is today, my friend. Fantastic. So this is what we'll do, Liam. We'll play this out to uh, fade, and uh, we'll thank everybody for uh, listening today, as they always do. And uh, as always, Liam, I'll leave it to you to say goodbye to the folks today. Go on now. Thanks for listening, everybody. Good day. Good day. Here you go, ladies and gentlemen. Brendan on the Moor, the Clancy Brothers, and Tommy Makeham. Stay safe. It's all a brave young highwayman. The story we will tell. His name was Willie Brennan, and in Ireland he did well. But on the Kilworth Mountains, he commenced his wild career. And many a well-made nobleman before him shook with fear. And it's Brennan on the moor, Brennan on the moor, bold, brave and undaunted was young Brennan on the moor. One day upon the highway, as Willie he went down, he met the mayor of Cashel, a mile outside the town. The mayor he knew his features, and he said, young man, says he, your name is Willie Brennan, you must come along with me. And this Brennan on the moor, Brennan on the moor, for brave and undaunted, was young Brennan on the moor. The Brennan's wife had gone to town, provisions gone to buy. And when she saw her Willie, she commenced to weep and cry. He said, hand to me that tenpenny, and as soon as Willie spoke, she handed him a blunderbuss from underneath her cloak. Her young Brennan on the moor, Brennan on the moor, for Raymond of Dawson was young Brennan on the moor. Now with a slow and blunderbuss, the truth.